Bible reading uh, today come from 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 1 to 12. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always to thank God for you, brother and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another in, is in, increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecution and trial you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judging judgment is right, and as a result, you will be content worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, is blessing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shoot out from the presence presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he come to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believe our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed proton by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Sorry, I had that all teed up on my... Oh, you got another one. Just give that to hang. <laughs> also, this is why I have it on paper as well. Sometimes IT fails you, doesn't it? So, how good are you at waiting? Just in that minute then, you had to wait for me. How good are you at waiting? Can you wait patiently? Comfortable with knowing something's going to happen and just wait patiently? Or do you try and fill the time as you're waiting, like checking on your phone, or you get a little task done, maybe, or you keep looking at your watch, tutting? (laughs) How we wait depends on what we're waiting for, doesn't it, I think? 
Um, there's a really great Instagram account called Miserable Men. I've got a few pictures here. And dads in the audience will, will uh, relate to this. Um, this bloke collects photos of a particular kind of waiting lots of us can relate to. Waiting in shops. Ugh. Just the idea of it makes my legs feel like lead. My mouth goes dry and my eyes go all droopy. And I'm obviously not alone looking at these guys. Well, for Christians, for us disciple apprentices of Jesus, a central part of our relationship with him is that he's promised to return. And right now, he's ruling from heaven, that place which is real but belongs to the spiritual realm and is currently invisible to us. But he's promised that there will come a day when he returns, um, when, verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire, unmissably, a day when he'll come to finally judge Get rid of evil once and for all, bringing those who belong to him into perfect eternal life. No more tears, no more pain, only perfect joy. A good thing to look forward to. And what this second letter to the Thessalonians helps us to know is how to wait well for Jesus' return. Um, To keep things short, I didn't have Acts 17, but when you get home, read Acts 17, the first half of it. That sets the context that this church has been established in a really hostile environment. The Apostle Paul, writing this letter, has been run out of town. He'd had to leave prematurely, prematurely, just as loads of people were becoming Christians and hadn't been able to return. So when he gets reports that mostly the church in Thessalonica is doing pretty well, he's really encouraged. Because from the get-go, this church has been under pressure from outside persecution. And now they're under pressure from the inside of false teachers coming in. That sort of vacuum left by Paul has meant that some dodgy teachers have come in. And you can imagine them saying, oh, you know, Paul doesn't really care about you, or else he'd have come back. Here's what you really need to know. And this false teaching has left them not looking forward to Jesus' return, but worried and confused about it. So they're wondering how they should wait well. The question for them is the same question we sometimes have when we're under pressure. Is it all worth it? Why bother keep going on? And how should we live while we wait for Jesus? So there's an outline in your leaflets. First, we'll look at Paul, why Paul is thankful to God for how they've gone so far. Then we'll see Um, what we've got to look forward to in the future to keep us um, going. And finally, we'll see how to live now in the light of the future that we're waiting for. So first of all, thanks for waiting. Thanks for waiting. Facing opposition, trials, persecution isn't necessarily a bad way to wait for Jesus' return. Paul reckons, verse 3, about the Thessalonians, we ought to thank God, always to thank God for you. Not we ought to, but we don't. But he means the most appropriate response to what we've heard about you is to give God thanks for you. And why? Because this church being attacked and opposed and beaten up hasn't weakened them. Look at the results in verse 3. Their faith is growing And their love for one another is increasing, so much so that Paul goes about boasting about their perseverance. See, at the end of the church, 
end of the year Church of the Year awards, they should get a special prize so that God is thanked more. So it's not that persecution for following Jesus is in itself inherently good. We're not expected to ask for it. We don't have to like it. But if you follow Jesus, suffering for that is inevitable. But it's not inevitably destructive. It's not inevitably bad for us. God can use the difficulties it brings to grow us. Um, I've got a friend in the UK. He works for a non-league football soccer team. In the, that's like the fifth tier of professional football. And he affectionately collects photos like these of non-league grounds. Really sort of, you know, shipping container, shipping container as you changing rooms, things like that. Really daggy. And I think he likes, likes it because it shows that they're, you know, they're bad. They're in bad condition. They're struggling. But they represent a kind of a perseverance under duress and against all the odds. There's an authenticity to supporters of clubs like that where there's very little glory but lots of genuine love for the team. And our persevering through persecutions and trials and opposition, it shows our love for God and for one another and it grows our love for God and one another. Shows our love and grows our love. God will use that kind of struggle to grow us so much that we end up thanking him for the opportunity to persevere. So if we do face trials and persecution, what should we take it to mean? Does it mean God's forgotten us or that he's punishing us? Well, actually, Paul says the opposite in verse 5, doesn't he? All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Our suffering isn't evidence that we're far from God. It's evidence that we truly belong to him. It's like living in occupied France in World War II. If you ran into the Gestapo and you were going along quietly with the occupation, even helping the Germans you'd face less trouble. But if you were found to be in the resistance, resisting the occupation, like Christians resist sin, the world and the devil, well, then it was evidence you were in the underground resistance and you would face getting shot. Facing troubles was evidence that you were on the right side. When we face troubles, it's evidence we're on the right side. So what to do with that then is... Don't wait for life to get easier before standing up for Jesus, before getting on with living for him. Get on with living by faith for Jesus, standing up for him, putting your head above the parapet, knowing full well it will bring you more trouble than the quiet life. And then don't despair when you're hated for loving Jesus. See, living for Jesus isn't a gentle life um, like Fluffy kittens. Got a slide there, just in case you don't know what a fluffy kitten looks like. Aww. That's not life with Jesus, all right? It's more like, this next slide, it's more like being a crash test dummy. But take heart. God will use our troubles for our good and for his glory. And those troubles altogether shows that we're right with God and that he trusts us to represent him 
through those trials as like his star witness. So, of course, this is relatively easy for us to think about. We're not likely to lose our homes or be beat physically attacked for belonging to Jesus. Not yet. But what about our brothers and sisters around the world who are, you can look on our website, like Open Doors. Open Doors um, have lots of information and prayer points for the persecuted church. For example, in Bangladesh, the story of Ganesh. When Ganesh came to faith in Christ, he began sharing the gospel with the people in his village, his friends and neighbors. His predominant, the predominantly Hindu villagers were not pleased with his faith or boldness in sharing the good news of Christ. They began attacking him hitting him from every side with wooden slats, throwing punches and kicks until he was on the ground. Ganesh suffered injuries on all his limbs and face and had to be rushed to emergency care. Here's a man faithfully following Jesus' commission, putting him, standing up for Jesus. Shouldn't God prove his work worthwhile? Shouldn't God protect him from that? And why do those villagers get away with it? Where's the comfort for Ganesh? Well, Paul encourages the Thessalonians in their suffering by looking ahead to the future. He encourages by getting us to look ahead at what you're waiting for. What you're waiting for, our next heading. We can keep persevering in faith through trials and opposition because we know that in the end, God will make everything right. Everything will be fair and square. Justice will be done completely. No loose ends. Verse 6 says, God is just. Do you believe that? Stop and think. Do you believe God is just? Do you think God is fair? See, the promise is that one day in history, Jesus will return, this time to judge. It'll be unmistakable, powerful, irresistible, unmissable. And when he does, verse 6, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And that's unpacked in verses 8 to 10. For those who trouble us, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And for Christians suffering from our faith, verse 10, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So two contrasting eternal outcomes. Everlasting destruction versus sharing in glory with Jesus. So remember, Paul writes this to encourage suffering Christians that justice will be done. And our faith, that's often so hard to live by, will be proved right in eternity where it most matters. And that's great for us. But punishment, everlasting destruction, shut out from God's presence, that's pretty confronting language, isn't it? Pretty confronting. And that's talking about hell. Can't we just talk about God's love and leave all that hell stuff out of it and at this point it is tempting to give you a talk about how hell it's not really as bad as we think it is because we've all got friends and family who we love who our lives are richer for having them in it who we reckon are 
nicer than some of the Christians we know who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But I can't soften that. Jesus describes eternal life without him as eternal darkness and eternal fire. Now, often the defense is that, well, he's just talking in symbolic language. Well, okay, but symbolic of what? Doesn't sound great, does it? Fire, darkness, can't be good. You don't want to spend eternity like that. Some will argue that hell isn't for eternity. Rather, everlasting destruction means that it's a one-off annihilation and everlasting in its effects. And that would be a lot easier to stomach, I suppose. But if you take all the biblical data, especially stuff that Jesus himself said, it's hard to come to that conclusion. It's hard not to conclude. Jesus reckons life for those who don't believe and don't trust in him as their Lord and Saviour is eternal and very undesirable. So we don't want to soften that concept of darkness. But I do want to say three things about the judgment that is coming. Not to soften the globe, but perhaps to remove some of our preconceived ideas. It's fair and appropriate It's characterized in relation to God's glory. And the real scandal is that any of us escape. So we'll go through this one at a time, don't worry. First, it's fair and proportionate. The coming judgment means that justice will be done. Justice will be done. Um, To illustrate, an old colleague of mine in Manchester helped his daughter to set up an apartment, a luxury Airbnb apartment. And did all this hard work on it. And then they were heartbroken because a couple booked in and went on a drug-fueled rampage, smashing TVs, the toilet, slashing curtains. And he said in his Facebook post, these, this is he's from the north, you know, so, these scum are thankfully a local couple and the police are involved. Hopefully justice will be served. Once it is, I will plaster their pictures for you all, all so hopefully you can share it locally to teach these low-life amoeba what decent people think of them. And I share that story not because his reaction is unusual, but because it's very usual, isn't it? It's totally understandable, actually. We all want justice to be done, and we all have the sense that people are going to get away with the evil that they do. Somebody commented on his post, yeah, don't worry, what goes around comes around. Except this this side of Jesus' return, often it doesn't, does it? People do get away with things. But God is just. Revelation 20 verse 12 tells us that God judges according to what we have done. And notice verse 6. He will pay back trouble with trouble. I think sometimes we tend to think all sin is sin. So all sin is sinful. And then we think, well, all Christians get the same eternal glory. So then we make that connection and say, all the unsaved get the same punishment. But that isn't right. God knows, for example, God knows if you helped when nobody else was watching, if you helped a little old lady across the road. And God knows if when nobody was watching, you pushed a little old lady under a bus. The good news about judgment is that the abuser, the murderer, the exploiter, 
will get their just desserts. Romans 12 verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not that there is no vengeance. It's just that that vengeance belongs to God, who is perfectly fair and good and takes everything into account. And all our invisible, unappreciated acts of goodness and sacrifice will be taken into account too. And all that means that we're freed. We're freed to forgive and not bear grudges. This side of Jesus' return, life is not going to be fair. We will be wronged by people who should know better who will get away with it. That's going to happen. Worse people than you will have an easier life. But we're freed from being bitter or weighed down by all of that because we can be sure that God will sort it all out in the end fairly, justly. So forgive. Don't be a doormat. Don't be unwise. Stand up for justice, especially for those without a voice. But don't try to do God's job for him in judging and punishing. So this judgment is fair. Second, this judgment is defined in relation to God's glory. First line. So the construction of that sentence in the original language means that everlasting destruction is namely, it can be characterized by being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So we tend to think that hell is over the top because we fail to see how offensive our sin is and we fail to see how good God is. Whenever humans such as Moses or Isaiah in the Bible, catch even a glimpse of God's glory, the reaction is always the same. They're overwhelmed by his pure holiness, his total absence of anything bad, showing up just how different they are. We tend to domesticate sin. One time Sharon and her cousin in the UK, this was, they got back to her car in town and there was somebody sat in it trying to break into it. Well, they'd broken into it and were trying to get it started. And he said, this, like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, it's all right, love. I've not damaged the lock. They're easy to break into these. You know, what you need is one of these um, anti-theft locks on your steering wheel and gave her a bit of advice and went on his way. See, so like that thief, in his mind, he hadn't done, he was doing her a favor almost, you know. We tend to create our own scheme of good to bad. You know, we're probably in the good top half of it, aren't we? If we honest with ourselves but God's perfect goodness shows up even our best of our scale up for the evil that it is so eternal destruction is being shut out from God's presence and glory of his might that is shut out from his pure goodness pure truth his loving kindness and mercy and when Jesus returns, he'll be the center of everything. Everything and everyone kept in his presence will be unified in him. And the Bible portrays that as an eternal life of perfect joy, perfect goodness, no more tears, no more pain. The biggest one you can have in life is getting more of Jesus. And we're promised perfect union with him forever. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting that future. Everlasting destruction is the absence of that. It's more of what we choose. 
and I'm, I resist C.S. Lewis quotes as a pastor because I think they're overdone. But here's one for you, for you C.S. Lewis fans from The Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis says, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Third, the real scandal is that we're not all facing eternal destruction. Because let me ask you, who would you let into heaven? If it was up to you, well, you might say everyone. Okay, you're going to let in terrorists? You're going to let in concentration camp commandants? Okay, well, how about we let in those who've lived a good life? Well... How good do I have to be for you to let me into your heaven? Where's the tipping point? Okay, well, what about those who are sincere in their belief or worldview? All right, well, how sincere do I have to be to get into your heaven? What about being true to yourself? Um, Who's authentic? How authentic? Whatever criteria we'd come up with, we'd never measure up to our own standards, let alone... Anybody else's? Even the nicest people you've met have sinned. We've all in some way put our things, put other things in God's place. We've all pridefully rejected his loving, good rule and said, no thanks, I'm in charge. But God is more inclusive than any of us. Because anyone who believes in Jesus escapes what we deserve and gets to live in glory. God lets in people, God in his grace lets in people you and I wouldn't. And he, not only that, he actively seeks us out like a good shepherd going after lost sheep. See, the fair thing, the right thing, the loving thing for God to do, left to our own devices, is to punish our sin, shutting us out from his goodness. But the good news is, Jesus has already been shut out of God's presence for us. If we really want to understand sin and hell and God's love, we must look to the cross of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, who is without sin, who gave himself up to incredible suffering and death on the Roman cross. Why? To take on the everlasting destruction we deserve. To take on that full measure of God's righteous anger for our rebellion against him, so that we don't have to bear it. So you can have that assurance today. All you have to do is trust and believe in Jesus. Trust in his death and resurrection to save you from eternal destruction and give your life to him. You can trust him with your life. He's the only one who's given up that much for you, And he longs for you to share in his glory forever. So heaven and hell are real. That's why we planted this church. That's why we want to reach our friends and family in this community for Jesus. We've got to share this good news that Jesus has done everything needed to stop us getting what we deserve. So 
so that people can know the goodness of forgiveness of sin, living for Jesus, the best life there is, and enjoying eternal glory with him. On to our final point. While you wait, how should we live then while we wait for Jesus' return? Bearing in mind God will make everything right in the end, get on with living for God, empowered by him. Verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. His calling there, that's his call for you to be saved by faith in Jesus. And this doesn't mean we're now to live a life worried about whether we're worthy enough to win eternal life. Because none of us are worthy. None of us were worthy when we were called. But it does mean, living that life worthy, it does mean don't carry on as you were. Being saved from sin at great cost. Came at great cost. So it's at odds with our calling. It's at odds with our new identity in Christ to pursue a sinful life, to carry on as we were. We're called to live our lives in response to God's grace to us in Jesus. Paul prays, verse 11, that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We're freed now, freed to get on with doing good things, not to earn our salvation, but prompted by faith, by knowing that we're already saved. And not under our own steam either, but in God's power. And all this is by grace, by God's free, undeserved gift for his glory. Verse 12, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So back to our original question, the the question the Thessalonians had, and we sometimes have, is it all worth it? Yes. Don't despair at trials and opposition. God will use them to grow us and the evidence that we belong to him, trusted to be his star witness. And in the end, we'll be thankful for them. Don't despair at injustice, God will sort it all out in the end, so we're free to forgive, knowing that justice belongs to God. And don't despair that judgment day is coming. Jesus has done everything needed to make us right with God. Jesus is the center of everything, and he personally invites us to make him our Lord and Savior. And don't despair waiting for Jesus' return. Get on with good deeds prompted by faith, praying for God's power to do them. So keep persevering by God's grace with that one big aim, glorifying Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray you'll help us um, stand up for Jesus, stick our head above the parapet, even if it means we suffer for him. Uh, Please use that kind of opposition to grow us, Help us to bear it with grace and uh, help it to grow us into your star witnesses. Help us not to despair at injustice, trusting you with all of that. And please help us to forgive as we have been forgiven. 
Help us not to despair that judgment day is coming. Help us know our assurance of salvation. We've got a great inheritance to look forward to. And for that to prompt us to get on with good deeds while we wait. Give us the power to be better than we would under our own steam. Amen.